0: The opioid crisis remains our nation's number one health epidemic. The National Institute of Health reports that in 2018, we will lose an estimated 115 people per day to opioid-related overdoses. On today's program, we'll have a conversation with activist and author Maureen Kavanaugh, whose new book, If You Love Me, A Mother's Journey Through Her Daughter's Opioid Addiction, chronicles the very personal story of her daughter's journey with substance use disorder. So stay tuned for a conversation with author and activist Maureen Kavanaugh, coming up next on Chapters. My name's Jim Derrick, and welcome to another edition of Chapters. On today's episode, we have live via Skype from Marblehead, Massachusetts, Maureen Kavanaugh. Welcome, Maureen. Thank you, Jim. Thanks for having me. Uh, It's great to have you, Maureen. In addition to being a new author, Maureen is the founder and president of Magnolia New Beginnings Incorporated, which is a 501c3 that she founded to provide support, resources, and opportunities for those struggling with substance use disorder. In addition to her role uh, with Magnolia New Beginnings, Maureen has recently taken on a new position as the executive director of Above the Noise Foundation, Incorporated. And we're going to talk a lot more about uh, Maureen's roles with Magnolia New Beginnings and Above the Noise shortly. But before we do that, we want to talk about her new book. And the name of that book is If You Love Me. A mother's journey through her daughter's opioid ad, uh, addiction. Congratulations on the new book, Maureen. And uh, again, much. welcome to the program. Can you talk to me a little bit about your history with opioid addiction and what brought you to, to writing this book?
1: I was one of those per- people that um, we grew up with addiction all around me. Everybody in my family has, has some form of substance use disorder, whether it's alcohol or drugs. drugs and alcohol Mm -hmm. and if it's not any of that it's food so i grew up knowing this and thank god dodged a bullet because i i wasn't affected right so i was one of the few people in my family if not the only person in my family that didn't have this problem um my answer to that was to get as far away from as possible from everybody because i didn't want it to to affect my family when I had a family mm-hmm. and I stayed in touch with my family, but I kept my distance. Right. So, um, when my daughter started to have uh, troubles and I have four children, she's the third of four children. Yep. So I was, I thought that I had done everything I could possibly do to prevent this. Mm-hmm. And, um, probably because of that, I don't think I caught it early. Mm-hmm. I, I, I looked at it and I saw things that I saw moodiness and hormones, and and uh, you you're out too much and you're in too much, and you know any variety of things. When it was really drugs,
0: right, right, and and so that kind of begins every parent's. I'm going to say nightmare because it really is a nightmare when you live with something like this, right?
1: It was absolutely a nightmare. Yeah,
0: yeah, and and so uh, you you were you alluded to this before. You brought up your children in a. Um, uh, suburban uh, upper middle class neighborhood. Uh, you did all the things that I'm going to say normal parents would do, bringing them up. There were no obvious markers to you, other than possibly a genetic pre- predisposition. Yeah,
1: I mean, not only that, but my Katie was of the three children, probably um, the one that you know got along with everybody, didn't have any real, didn't have had a. Two older siblings that were around for her, a younger brother she adored. Everybody everybody loved Katie. She was sure. the kid that everybody loved. She was sweet. She was a hard worker. She worked. She went to school. She um, graduated with honors. She um, uh, volunteered. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is like if somebody had said, what would you like in a daughter? I would have put all those things together. Yeah. And she's beautiful and yeah. I and sweet. I would have, like, created that child.
0: You know, we were, so we're talking before the show, Maureen, I'm sorry to cut you off. We were talking before the show about how this illness is something that strikes people that uh, you you can't pick someone out of a crowd that's going to suffer from substance use disorder. You can't pick the parents of those that suffer from substance use disorder. And that's a major goal of this book, right, is to break down those sort of self-limiting beliefs saying it can't happen to us. We've Absolutely. done everything right. I mean...
1: If, if you were going to pick somebody out of a crowd that it should have happened to, it would have been me. I come from a whole family of it, yeah. and it, I, I've never had any problem with substances, and that's genetic, too. Right. I got lucky. Right. So um, I think that it's it's important for me that people understand that you that you really can't predict this and that um, we all have to come together over it. Sure. Because we're losing an entire generation to uh, to overdose. Right. And to the effects aside from overdose of, um, of addiction.
0: Right. Right. So Katie, uh, went through, um, started using things other than opioids. She was using other, other substances, right?
1: She was drinking and smoking pot, I guess in high school, but you know, hit it really well.
0: Yeah.
1: And it, it didn't, it, it didn't create enough of a, of a problem that I knew about it. Let's put it that way. Right. So she was, I guess on, you know, on the weekends and, When she was out with her friends but she never she didn't come home you know drunk she did not come home she held it together and and so that i didn't suspect that that was going on
0: right must have been a uh, i can't imagine well i can't imagine unfortunately but but for the people that are listening out there that the the idea that you find out your child has a potentially fatal illness is, is a jarring thought to say the least. It's, it's everyone's worst fear. And that's what we're talking about here. That right. moment when you find out that she's transitioned to opioids had to have been just jarring for you and your husband and her dad.
1: It was, hor- it was horrible. Yeah. Yeah. Because you know, you don't know what to do. Yeah. I mean, you know, many people don't know what to do. And I think that, five six years ago when this was uh, first going on with in my family um, there was less information out there but mm. there's still you know the shame and the stigma that people that people kind of distance themselves from it or they yeah. try to that they think that it can, they try to tell themselves reasons why it can't happen to them so if when it does happen they don't know what to do because they th- this is such a kept in the closet kind of thing
0: right and stigma it's, and shame have an enormous, uh, have, have a way of perpetuating this illness would you say that's the case absolutely yeah I know that yeah. you, you said I, I read this on one of the end of your a quote from you on the end of one of your YouTube videos silent stigma and shame are killing our children it isn't their silence it's ours and you said I refuse to be quiet anymore I found that to be a very very powerful quote um, can you tell me the role of stigma and silence and isolation What's that like? Not only for Katie, but for you as a parent. How does that perpetuate the illness of substance use disorder?
1: Katie was raised in a small town, and people in this town don't talk about these things, and certainly didn't talk about them six or seven years ago. Right. Um, my fear was that people would find out. It's um, and I thought by keeping quiet, by no, if no one knew, that this would just be a blip. You know, it would be a problem. We would take care of it. Here, I have the best kid in the whole world. She's on top of it. I found out she was using um, opioids for the first time because she told me <clears throat> that she was she had experimented with, <clears throat> excuse me, she was experimenting with drugs and she thought she was drinking too much and she had tried heroin mm-hmm. and I was horrified, sure. but I was so glad that she told me mm-hmm. and we went immediately and we got her in an outpatient program and um, you know, she didn't have to go to detox. It hadn't gotten to that. Uh, And I thought that we, okay, we got on top of this. We're doing okay. And, um, of course, that's, you know, that would have been too easy. That was not what happened. But we tried to keep it quiet Mm -hmm. because we didn't want anybody to know. I didn't want it to follow her. I didn't want people to ostracize her. And um, in doing that, um, I think that, you know, she just learned to hide it. So she went almost immediately back to using again and even more so. But because it was quiet and nobody knew and she kept it quiet and, and I didn't find out right away and it just grew and grew like a monster. Yeah. And that's what happens when, when people isolate.
0: I want to remind people, we're speaking with Maureen Cavanaugh. Maureen, among many other things, and we're to talk about some of those other roles, is uh, an author and her new book is out on September 4th. The name of the book is If You Love Me, A Mother's Journey Through Her Daughter's Opioid Addiction. Um, Maureen, as, as I listen to you talk and recount that story about isolation, if we think about any other illness, if our child was diagnosed with cancer or juvenile diabetes or anything else, you drive to downtown Boston, there's a JDRF sign up. You see Juvenile uh, Diabetes Research Foundation. You see Dana-Farber. Thank God for those great organizations. Our nation's number one health epidemic, you don't see any of those types of signs. There's no place no clearing house. Here you are. I can't imagine being a parent whose child was recently diagnosed with a potentially fatal illness and laying over the top of that is, by the way, you have to be quiet and you're not going to get cards from your friends, nor are you going to get phone calls or letters of support. You're, you have to go it it alone, right? Just the opposite. opposite. Yeah.
1: So when, when people did find out and uh, they found out because she was arrested and it was in the local paper, um, I was a uh, special education teacher in my ta- in my little small town, and knew everybody. And she knew everybody because she worked in the local grocery store and she volunteered in the school. So when they splashed it across the newspaper, um, I had the experience of no one calling me. Sure. Not one person. Didn't keep them from talking though. I can guarantee you that they were talking up a storm, yeah. but nobody reached out. Yeah. So when that happened, I decided I will never be quiet about this again. And that's when I that's when I got loud and went started to go to learn to cope. Thank God for learn to cope. Right. And then started to um, go to events with my Marblehead T-shirt on just so everybody would know where I was from. (laughs) Beautiful. um, I I made a real point of um, just just being very open about it because I realized that I had made a mistake, a big mistake by being quiet.
0: Now, um, is that where Magnolia New Beginnings was founded?
1: That's well. I actually um, started Magnolia in 2012, so several years before I, I incorporated the nonprofit. And it was originally supposed to help anybody that needed a new start. Mm-hmm. I, I knew it would be lots of people with a substance use disorder, but I didn't didn't it didn't become exclusively uh, the nonprofit didn't become exclusively that until um, until my daughter's issues came came out.
0: I see. So you were already because you have an education in substance use counseling.
1: And and nonprofit management. And I mean, so management. I have a master's in nonprofit management. I had always wanted to start my own um, my own nonprofit. So this is
0: before Katie's heroin addiction was known to you.
1: Yeah, actually, you know what? It all it all got pushed aside when I first found out about everything with Katie because I was too busy freaking out over Katie to do anything. So it was really and,
0: serendipitous then because it was an interest and a passion of yours unbeknownst to you, it was going to become a life.
1: I had no, trust had me, daughter. this is the, yeah, and never thought that this was going to happen. I always tell Katie that too, that all the, anybody that gets any help, it's all because of her. Mm-hmm. I mean, because if this hadn't happened, it's, it's it, this, this organization would have never been created and the support groups would have never been created. It's, it's and there's incredible. a lot of people.
0: Maureen Cavanaugh is the founder and president of Magnolia New Beginnings Incorporated, which is a 501c3, whose mission is to provide education, advocacy, and support for people living under the effects of substance use disorder. And that includes family members, grandparents, the list goes on and on and on. Uh, That includes people in recovery, actively seeking recovery. And this organization was founded, as Maureen said, in 2012, before Maureen Knew that her daughter had a heroin problem, and uh, or was had a substance use disorder uh, with heroin involved, and um, it took on I assume a, a a much bigger impact for you and and now for Katie uh, as a result of that. Um, but uh, this organization has over seventeen thousand people that access your support groups and your website uh, through your website, correct? And it's all online support, education, and advocacy too, <laughs> right?
1: It's, it's, it, there's a lot of people that get a lot of help.
0: And what is the website, Maureen?
1: Uh, it's magnolianewbeginnings.org is our website. And all of the, all of the support groups are on Facebook. So, um, and there's links to, links to those on the, uh, on magnolianewbeginnings.org.
0: What I um, absolutely love about this resource is that um, as someone who has um, walked this walk, I can tell you that the number one problem and difficulty other than the isolation, is you call your pediatrician, you call the medical community, you call your insurance carrier, you call your state representative. You can call anybody you want or could call anybody you want up until very, very recently and ask for help. And you're not going to get it, not because of bad intentions, but because... Our nation's number one health edem- epidemic just wasn't addressed. It wasn't That's addressed. True. There was no information clearinghouse. What Magnolia New Beginnings does is turn that completely around and say, here's a grassroots organization. You have no paid staff? We have no paid staff. No paid staff. They operate completely uh, through donations. Maybe do you get grants at all?
1: We're mostly reliant, on, relying on, on individual donations.
0: So this is the type of thing that... People like Maureen, people like Joanne Peterson, um, and I put them in the two under the same breath, come up with that literally rescue families. And you said, I saw you uh, interviewed uh, in that same YouTube piece, and you said that the number one payback for you is when you hear that a family has been positively impacted by Magnolia New Beginnings and the website and the information that you have.
1: Yeah, I mean, and and it happens a lot and uh, people get into treatment and, and lots of good things happen. And to be a part of that is such a gift. It's amazing. Um, because you know, like you said, there just, wasn't anywhere to go when I, when this first happened or there, I didn't know about it. When I found out about learn to cope, Um, that's when all the doors started to open and I started to see that there were people out there just like me and there was information out there and I thank God every day for that organization because I don't know what I would have done without it. So we do kind of a, you know, like a small version of that and it's, it, it, there's not the costs associated with it because really we're, um, we're. Uh, on Facebook and our groups are run by the parents so it's just people helping each other and I guarantee I mean in in Massachusetts we have a closed Facebook group that has over a thousand people in it Mm. so I guarantee you and this happened to me the other night I went on there at two o'clock in the morning because i couldn't sleep and i said how come i can't sleep anymore and 20 people answered me because they were all on there and they couldn't be there <laughs> yeah. so I, I mean it's just sometimes it's just nice to know there's somebody out there that's also you know playing everything in their head 200 times too um but they know what to do there is not a question that ever gets answered that that asked that doesn't have an answer in there because you have parents in there it, when you have a thousand people in there You have people in there that have been through everything, right? They'll tell you how to section somebody. They'll tell you which sober houses are good. They'll tell you anything and the answers are almost immediate too. So it's, it's, it's what I wished was there when I, when I first got, um, you know, when I first found out my daughter was well, in What I,
0: I love about the story, Maureen, and I'm, ta- I'm speaking directly to you personally now, is that rather than walk away from the the table and just say, well, I'm going to get cynical about this. People don't care. Uh, I'm going to take my ball and go home. You said, well, there's no community for me. I'm going to create one. And that's what you've done here. It's the same thing Joanne Peterson did with Learn to Cope. Um, you've yeah. created a community.
1: Yeah.
0: You know, and you've created a village of people that understand, that speak the language so that, uh, so that you had a clearinghouse for this and I, I you know i just I just find it very empowering to know that someone can have that big of a change in the landscape um, with all these thousands of users uh, out there that are benefiting from this and I have a couple of specific questions for you because I know you do some advocacy and I know you've got opinions on this and I just wanted to ask them if if that's okay first of all here we have our nation's number one health epidemic that was in speaking now specifically of the opioid crisis, was brought on indisputably by Big Pharma, and particularly Purdue Pharmaceuticals, who's now being sued by, including Massachusetts, I believe, 40 attorneys general. Um, and Sam Quinones has a great book, Dreamland Out, that talks about the rise of the black tar heroin uh, from Mexico, and, and it's um, uh, coinciding with the increase of opioid pain pills being prescribed. So there's been that big-money pharma Uh, shadow cast over this whole thing. I'm curious about the other side, Maureen. Um, What about the treatment industry? Uh, This is something that I've only recently come to have some cynicism over or maybe some skepticism about. And I'm curious, people ask, probably the number one question I get when I'm talking uh, around the SAFE coalition or I'm speaking in public is, what do we need more of? I keep hearing we need more beds. We need more beds. And my answer's kind of changed on that. I'm just not sure how to answer that. I'm curious how you'd answer this.
1: So, um, I mean, there's a lot of good people in, in treatment that work in treatment. They mm-hmm. work with, they have good intentions, and there's just as many that don't. So um, I don't, you know, Katie was in treatment in different form, in, in a different forum over 40 times. So all that walking in and out of detox and treatment and treatment and detox, and I I don't know how much it works to tell you the truth. You know what we need? I think is what happens after treatment? What happens when that person, if they're lucky enough to get 21 days and they're just starting to maybe get the drugs out of their system and they walk out of of treatment and they can't get a job and they don't have any housing and their family relationships are destroyed or or forever changed at the very best. they have to change all of their friends. They have no activities they can do anymore. that don't because a lot of their friends are drinking socially or right. or they're hanging out. You know, they're young people. So the people that can drink socially, they're out. And so they're who are they supposed to hang around. They have and even if they know who to hang around, they don't know what to do because they've never done it before. So they're stuck back in their minds wherever they were when they first started using. So you have a 23 year old young lady that is really 16 in her head. So we have it, we expect people to walk out of treatment and be all better. And it doesn't work like that. And we need to start realizing we treat a a relapsing brain disease like it's the like it's a bad bout of the flu. And it does that's not going to work. And it's not working. And we're losing 174 people a day,
0: 174 people a day because of in, in well, part that, because of inadequate that's such treatment.
1: An underestimate yeah that doesn't include the people that will losing because of the health complications just of, from using the drugs mm-hmm. i'm just talking about overdose 115 and these are old num old numbers because we're not up to date with these things so i'm sure they're higher 115 just from opioids a day would i mean the numbers are staggering and it when then that doesn't take into consideration the lives that are just ruined because of these drugs mm-hmm. so if if this doesn't make people people pay attention i just don't understand what it'll take for people to stop and say we've got to do things differently and i do think that that's the long term because so for example magnolia to beginnings the nonprofit our financial um yes. our financial mission is to um help people get into sober living
0: right that's where it's headed yep
1: we have a very kind of stringent uh way uh, uh guidelines that we adhere to in order to do that we don't take people from uh you know parents calling us in or people calling us in off the streets and it breaks my heart when somebody calls and i have to tell them no but there's no way for me to really know whether the person has. Uh, uh, the willingness that we're looking for, because we only have a certain amount of money, so we look for somebody with absolutely no financial means mm-hmm. and a, and a, an incredible willingness to get well. And re- so I depend on the staff in the treatment centers, almost exclusively Mass Health treatment centers, to um to refer people. Can I just we, stop you
0: right there, refer- real quickly, for our sure. listeners, Mass Health treatment center? What does that uh, uh what what does that mean?
1: Well, Massachusetts, we're fortunate enough here to have a fairly robust um, insurance program called MassHealth. And it provides for uh, detox and treatment. And, it, you know, you, there still is a process to get in. It's not always easy. It's not always available. <clears throat> but when I look around the rest of the country and see what's avail- what other people have to deal with, we're really pretty lucky.
0: We're pretty far so, ahead. Yeah.
1: Right. So if you want to get into treatment, there is... Um, I'm not exactly sure, probably 20 different places across the state that you can, you can get into detox. And then, you know, you keep your fingers crossed, beg and plead and whatever you got to do to get through the uh, through into a, um, further treatment. And there are programs in Massachusetts, so there are they're out there. And even in some of the jails, there are programs. So we work with some of the Department of Corrections. we work with the mass health treatment centers. Every once in a while we'll get somebody that was that's in a private treatment center and in Massachusetts and is there on a scholarship. they're there you know for free doesn't happen often, but every once in a while. Mm-hmm. And we help them with their first month of sober living. Yeah. So that's where I saw the gap.
0: So what, what and, you're really, what I hear you saying then is that, not that the treatment's bad, it's fine, but, but what it's not recognizing is the long-term implication of trying to get somebody back On track. This is this is an illness that changes fundamentally changes the biology in somebody's brain for some say up to five years. Um, So to expect somebody to go into a 90 day rehab and come out and nothing more to see here, folks, continue on about is not realistic. And so what you're looking to do is is support that long term sober living retraining of the brain learning the life skills that somebody's lost and all of those healthy, sober Absolutely. living habits, right? And doing it- Well, sometimes
1: uh, they never had the life skills. Right. You know, some of these kids are using from the time they were teenagers. Right. So they've, they've not matured in the same way that somebody who has not used drugs. Right. Yet we expect them to not only get over this, you know, get through this disease and have this nagging, and everybody knows that when you first are, um, are sober, this is difficult Mm -hmm. so we expect them to do all the work to maintain the sobriety and we want them to do it without giving them the support or the guidance that they need and then we're surprised when it doesn't work out
0: yeah it sounds to me you know here we are again i can't keep saying it it's just mind-boggling to me it's our nation's number one health epidemic and we just we're just behind in terms of our understanding how to treat this
1: yeah you know what I, i think that we have to start talking about the financial implications of this, too, and the effect on the economy for years and years to come. Uh-huh. Maybe that would make people realize that, you know, I'm, I'm for whatever gets people to do something.
0: I love that you just said that. When I originally started um, working in the in the nonprofit sector of, of substance use disorder, I would say, look, folks, it's not a conservative or a liberal agenda here, whether you're talking about expanded access to treatment or Uh, more uh, state or federal funding for treatment uh, or broadening insurance laws or actually holding the insurance carriers accountable to the health, uh, rather to the Addiction Parity Act, which was passed federal law in 2008, where they have to treat uh, substance use disorder as any other illness. These aren't liberal or conservative agenda items, in my opinion, Maureen, and you're kind of saying the same thing. I can show you, I think, and I don't have the numbers to do it right now, but someone can show you that there is a return on investment when we have a healthy public. And we are losing so many people. We're losing not only their intellect and their uh, uh, their, their, their role in our families and in our society and our culture, but we're also losing their economic engine, right? And, and so we can show you on either side of the ledger, a so-called right-leaning side or a so-called left-leaning side, that this is, a, this is the way to treat people, number one, who have an illness just like any other illness, and number two, we can show you a return on that investment.
1: Right. Even if you don't have an ounce of empathy right. for, somebody, for another human being, it's still financially, it does not make sense to continue to do things the way we're doing them.
0: Right. We're speaking with Maureen Cavanaugh. Maureen is an author. Her new book, If You Love Me, A Mother's Journey Through Her Daughter's Opioid Addiction, is coming out on September 4th. And I want people to know they can uh, go to Amazon.com. They order the book. Uh, I know it's going to be a great read. I can't wait to get my copy. And um, Maureen, how can they follow you to find out where they might be able to hear you if you're speaking?
1: Um, there's a Facebook page, and it's for, it's the book's Facebook page. If you love me, you could look that up. Um, and that has, most of, that has the events on there. Or you can join Mag, any one of the Magnolia groups, and all my events are on there. Um, there's also a... A book page, an author page on Macmillan Publishing where they can, you can go to Macmillan Publishing and look up an author and my events are on there as well.
0: Great. And I want to make sure um, we leave a few minutes to talk more about the book uh, because there's some great observations on how this, this is an important read for, for everybody. And I would argue as much so for someone that hasn't experienced this or more so than uh, someone that has. and And we'll tie that loop together Uh, towards the end. Um, In addition to being an author, as you've just heard, Maureen is the founder and uh, president of Magnolia New Beginnings, uh, which is a nonprofit dedicated to providing online support groups for people that are impacted by substance use disorder, people in recovery, and also scholarship funding for people that want to enter healthy, sober living once they've uh, gone through some some treatment. And Maureen, I want to ask you about uh, another issue, is there anything that legislators could do, in your opinion, to assist people in getting better treatment or to improve the landscape relative to the opioid crisis right now?
1: I mean, Ideally, we would cover sober living. Mm-hmm. There would be um, uh, longer term treatment. Um, they would support businesses maybe with tax incentives to hire people that are in recovery. Um we would uh, i would have more drug courts i think that that's drug court is amazing i mean there's some wonderful success stories out of drug court and um oh there's i mean there's there's a list that could go on and on we should be pairing people up with recovery coaches right because like i was saying earlier there's no um there's there's how people are not able to jump from years of using and years of going in and out of treatment to a healthy life overnight. It doesn't work like
0: that. And it only makes sense. Here we are at parents or loved ones. and we're supported by organizations like Learn to Cope, Magnolia New Beginnings, which provides support supportive services for us for the long term. It creates that village. and that's what you're trying that's what you're talking about for people with substance use disorder is to get a recovery coach that's going to be in there with you for the long haul to literally right. coach you on to healthy living and sober living.
1: Yeah, because how many of our kids at 19 or 20 years old, if you told them you need to go get a copy of your Social Security card, they might not even know how to do that. Now, you know, these are these are simple things that we as adults know. But if for a person who's burnt out their family and doesn't have those connections anymore and they may not have anybody to go to, simple things became become really difficult. And then those simple things interfere with getting a job, with getting your license back, with getting into um into safe housing and then that spirals into relapse so right. i mean if we don't want this cycle to continue then we have to stop talking and start doing things about
0: Sorry. it well in addition to uh your role with magnolia new beginnings which continues in your new book you are now the executive director of above the noise which is a f- above the noise foundation um can you talk to us about your role there and, and what above the noise foundation is
1: I am so excited about this. Um, I'm. I just took the position just a couple weeks ago. Congratulations. What above the thank you. What above the noise does is they put on. We're going. We're planning on putting on sober music festivals across the country. Our first inaugural event is in Pawtucket, Rhode Island, at McCoy Stadium on September 29th, and it's an entire day's event. um, Starts out at about one o'clock. There will be uh, 75 different nonprofits both outside the stadium for the whole community and um, inside the stadium after the concert starts. We have music from the James Montgomery, James Montgomery and friends. And I think James Montgomery is friends with every incredible musician (laughs) over the age of 35 in the entire
0: He's played with a lot of them. He's played with a lot of them. Yeah,
1: and he's bringing them all with him too. Yeah, he's brilliant. So we have that out in the parking lot, and that's free to the whole community. At um, 5 o'clock, the uh, concert inside the stadium will start. And I can't say who the headliner is, but
0: watch the website, because by the time this airs, you will see the headliner in. And, and believe me, you will you'll be disappointed if you can't get a ticket. <laughs> That's
1: OK, right? I think the concert's going to sell out in a week. Yeah. I'd be very surprised if it doesn't. I, I was do just going to say there's a lot of tickets, but they're going to go fast. And inside the stadium, then we have 40 to 50 nonprofits inside the stadium mm-hmm. for while the show is going on, giving out information. And there's small grassroots nonprofits like Magnolia New Beginnings, um, like Learn to Cope, sure. inside, talking about what they do, giving out information to anybody that needs it. And the process, all of the donations that come in from the concert, the, the I shouldn't say all of them, the um, the donations that come in from the concert are going back to the grassroots organizations. So that's who we're raising money for. So it's just... It's everything good all wrapped up in one organization, and I'm really excited about it.
0: This just seems like the perfect job for you because it's really bringing everything full circle. You talk about creating communities, creating communities. Here you are with the online support groups and the scholarships and supporting people and advocating for them. And now you've got a venue that celebrates all of that and supports other organizations doing the same thing.
1: Yes, right? it's like a dream job. Yeah. I mean, we have, we're have we going to have meetings going on outside in tents. We have yoga and meditation, and it's just going to be awesome. It's going to be an entire awesome day. And this is what we need to do because, and it's a sober event. Yeah. There's no drugs, no alcohol allowed in the stadium, no, no alcohol being sold. And this is what we have to do is we have to remind people that you do not need drugs and alcohol to have a good time and if you're not in, if we're hoping lots of people are in recovery are going to come and we're giving out 2,000 tickets free to the people in, in recovery Fantastic. through different organizations and we're encouraging people in recovery to be there because it's for them but we're also hoping their friends who may not be in recovery come and stand by them yeah. and show them that they support them and that they, they can have fun without drinking and without um, without uh, drugs
0: that's so important that's September 29th um, Maureen, in the few minutes that we have left, and you've got a tight schedule, I appreciate you taking the time with us. I want to shed, if we can, the wonderful news about Katie. Katie celebrated a year. One year. One yes. year.
1: When I finished the book, she had come out of the last treatment center, like just a few days before. And, but I, I mean, that had happened 40 times. So I was, you know, cautiously optimistic, like I always, <laughs> like I always had been, but um I didn't know what was going to happen and I am so very extremely proud of her.
0: Yeah it's got to be I, I can't imagine the feeling. Here you've got this book coming out. Like you said you you couldn't have known. How long have you been no. working on the book?
1: I actually wrote it very quickly. I don't, I wrote it in 3 months. Oh come on.
0: <laughs> now I you're really did. Me I know
1: it was I was approached by an agent to write it in yeah. um in March of last year and I wrote it in three months and the, I finished it on a Friday. He yeah. sent it out on a month on Monday when he got back to New York. And by the end of the week, I had um, I had meetings set up with three of the top six publishers.
0: Fantastic. And it's, has Katie it, read yeah, the book. She has. she has. What was her reaction? She,
1: has, she loved it. She loved it. She's really pr- she's proud of me, which is nice. But it like I said, this is my story. It's not her story. And of course, you know, it involves her. But I mean, I we could write a whole like two more books about Katie's story. It's really about the story of a mother. I felt like it would be, I mean, there was so many things that are not in that book that are about, you know, that are Katie's business. I understand. And I feel like it would be infringing, infringing on her privacy. Right. um,
0: No, I, I totally understand. And can we talk about the, the, the title? Because there's so much in this title. If you love me, if you love me, tell me about the, the significance of that phrase to you relative to this journey with Katie.
1: I actually love the title of the book because um, there's um, so many times in when you're raising children, even when they're they're little, when they say, you know, if you love me, if you love me, you'd buy me candy. If you love me, um, you'd let me stay up late. And we tell them, well, if you love me, you'd be good. And if you love me, you would later on, unfortunately, stop using drugs. And um, I mean, so many times has that been said but this title comes from a time when Katie was not doing well at all. And some sober friends had dropped her off at my house. And she was just crying and a mess and was sitting on my kitchen floor. And um, I, I said, please, Katie, I said, "You're I love you and you're going to die. And she looked at me and couldn't have been any more serious and said, if you if you love me you'd let me die and she meant it too because she was in so much pain and i thought for i did that have to think that maybe it was unfair to keep holding on to her and to keep begging her to go back to treatment and to um just to be here because she was in so much pain um but i'm glad i hung on
0: in my opinion the value of this book can't be overestimated Um, this is, this is a conversation piece and we were talking a little bit about our hope that, and your hope that this become part of a, um, book club. Sure.
1: Yeah. I, I mean, I've had lots of people read this that have gone, that have gone through it. And I think there's this immediate feeling like, oh my God, because I will tell you that I, I I said to people that this book needs to sell because I'm never going to get hired to work anywhere after, but everybody realizes how (laughs) crazy I am. (laughs) But the thing about it is people read this book and they're like, I did that and I did that and I did that. People that have been through this. I mean, we do some crazy, crazy things and um, I know that there'll be an audience of people that have gone through this and there's so many of us, but who I want to read the book is the people that think it can't happen to them because I, I don't think that I thought it could happen to me because I tried very hard to do everything right, whatever that means. And looking back on it, I think I did. I mean, I didn't do everything perfectly. And I made mistakes like everybody else. But I definitely tried really hard. And Katie comes from a family that loves her and a mother that loves her and a father that thinks she's The best thing in the whole world, so none of the signs that people like to use to protect themselves were there, and I understand that need to protect yourself. Well, it can't happen to me, and it can't happen in my family, because I we go to church and we have Sunday dinner, and they, you know, they she my daughter sings in the choir and she plays softball. Well, Katie did all those things too, and it still happened to me. And those are the people that I want to read the book. I want to read the book because. I'm hopeful that if people understand how easily this can happen, that maybe they'll get scared enough to do something.
0: Right. right. And, and if it does happen, they'll at least expose themselves, have exposed themselves to that possibility and be willing to reach out and look for support and help and understand they're not alone. And there right. are resources out there.
1: And there are resources in the back of the book, too. Yeah. So um, I'm you know, that is one of the reasons, too, that I'd like people to have this book, because there are resources back there that will help people reach out and not feel so alone and not isolate and um, and hopefully, you know, get help sooner rather than later.
0: Again, the book is If You Love Me, A Mother's Journey Through Her Daughter's Opioid Addiction. Uh, The name of the author is Maureen Cavanaugh. Maureen Cavanaugh, C-A-V-A-N-A-G-H is the name of the author. Maureen, I can't thank you enough for spending the time with us today. I am really looking forward to seeing you on your book tour. I'm looking forward to reading the book hopefully having you out to speak to our organization. Absolutely. So for my guest, Maureen Cavanaugh, my name's Jim Derrick saying thanks for listening to Chapters Radio, and we'll see you next week.